The scripture this morning comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapters 3 and chapters 4. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted it. If the Lord, it is the Lord who judges me, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have? that you did not receive. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? This is God's word. Amen. Uh, Thank you, Susan. Uh, Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, We are continuing this morning after a brief excursus last week uh, in Matthew's Gospel back into our series on Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And this is one of these texts. Uh, the problem with me not preaching last week on what I planned was that now I've got the, today I've got to figure out how to cover some of the stuff from last week and then also cover this morning. That's good news and bad news. Uh, we've got a lot to do. Because this is, one of, uh, this is one of these texts where if 
it feels like we should slow down and spend about six weeks working through this because if the concepts that Paul's working through here found their way into our hearts, it would change everything. And, and, it's, and it's one of these texts that I feel like the church of Jesus Christ, at least in the West, the contemporary church, really need to pay attention to. And so we have a lot to do, okay? So buckle your seatbelts. We're going we're gonna to try to get through all of this, okay? Um, Paul is writing to this church that he planted in Corinth in his second missionary journey. He would come to a city. He would live there for a while, preach and evangelize until church developed, and then he would put leaders in place, and once they were established, he would move on to another city. But he would, when he was gone, he would write letters back to these churches that he had planted to talk to them about things that had come to his intention. Uh, sometimes they would be more uh, encouragement than correction. Other times more correction than encouragement. This letter has more correction than encouragement. He's got some hard things to say, and we're a lot like them, which means that A lot of what we're going to talk about through this series, looking at this letter, is going to be hard for us to hear. It's going to be stinging. And in these first few chapters, Paul has a very specific pastoral concern, and it is that there is division and disunity among the Christians in Corinth. And I choose those words, division and disunity, carefully. In chapter 1, Paul addresses the division in the church, chapter 1, verse 10. There are different groups within the church, that have attached themselves to different leaders, some to Paul, some to this man Apollos, even some to Cephas or Peter. And they're, they're attaching themselves to these leaders, and then they're, they're using those differences, whether they're theological differences, some say they're cultural differences, whatever it might be, they're using them and they're causing quarrels and offense, and even sometimes some groups are leaving the church. So there's, there's this division that's happening. Um, and, and it's a problem, not just in Corinth, it's a problem uh, that we face as we try to do ministry here in the city of Winter Haven. When we were doing our research to plant this church four years ago, I began to kind of do a um, family tree of the churches in the city of Winter Haven. And what I found is, and you'd be surprised how many cases of this there are, there are churches in this city that are fourth generation church splits. Now that means that that will be a church that is split from a church, division, right, over some issue, a church that's split from a church that was also a split from a split from a split. Okay? And so this is an issue. I mean, because division, it harms the cause of Christ. It's, it's troubling and, and it's real, okay? But before you get all the way to division, what I want you to see is there's disunity. And that's why I use the word specifically. It's not enough, in other words, to avoid division we also have to deal on an ongoing basis with disunity because it's the nature of sin to, to create alienation. Uh, to be constantly, in other words, working among us, pulling us apart from one another, creating emotional distance and indifference or competition or envy or even hatred. So that's, See, sin works this way to create disunity and alienation. The work of the gospel, we believe, is the exact opposite. It's to create oneness. The gospel is power to overcome our differences and work towards forgiveness and love and mutual acceptance of one another, okay? To not live selfishly towards one another. To not let self-pity get in the way, okay? So let me illustrate very briefly from the early Christians in in chapter 2 of the book of Acts. Luke tells us about them. Here's the way he describes the early church. He says, they were together. 
they had all things in common. That's the Greek word quantania. They were frequently and spontaneously in and out of one another's lives almost, almost every day. And they were power, he's describing they were powerfully glued together and refused to let anything or anyone come between them and tear them apart. He goes on to say in chapter 4 that the church was of one heart and soul. In other words, all the different pieces moving together in the same direction toward a common goal. There was synergy, right? Everybody coming together, refusing to let whatever it is start begin to cause rifts and separate us from one another, but everybody moving in the same direction towards a common goal. And we have to fight for that. It, it doesn't happen without a lot of hard work. And Paul is writing to this church that's been ripped apart by division and disunity, and he's got some things to say here in these early chapters, okay? And so I want to I address this together under three headings, and they're just the three parts of the outline that I've given to you in, in, on the back of the, of the page that has the Scripture passage in it, okay? And it's just this. I want you to see, first, Paul gives a warning to the church about division and disunity. Second, he gives the reasons for division and disunity. And then thirdly, he shows us where the power to heal it comes from. Okay, so those three things, warnings about division and disunity, backing up from that, the reasons it happens in the church, and then thirdly, where the power comes from to heal it. Okay, so let's just walk through the passage under those three headings, starting with just this. First, a warning about division and disunity. Okay, I want to draw this out. It's going to take a minute, so hang in there. Okay, first I want you to notice the images that Paul uses in verse uh, 6 and and below in chapter 3. To describe the church. Verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he nor plants, nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And then in verse 9, you are God's field. So the first image is that the church is a field. It's not a new idea. In the Old Testament, Yahweh referred to his people Israel as his vineyard all the time. So it's very helpful though. Especially in understanding pastoral ministry. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered. And that's what pastors do, if you were wondering, right? Right, because there is this, this you know, we do do something beyond this right here, right? Um, we plant, we water, we fertilize, we weed, we teach, we tend, we nourish, we protect. Right? The church is a field that God, by the Spirit, through the ministry of pastors and leaders, is cultivating. Okay? And that's what Paul says. Now, but there's a second metaphor. And this metaphor really dominates verses 10 all the way down through verse 17. So it's the, kind of the rest of that passage there in, in chapter 3. And Paul says, you are God's field, verse 9, God's building. And then down in three sixteen, do you not know that you're God's temple and God's Spirit dwells in you? And so the second image is that the church is a temple. And... and Okay, what this means is is that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is working to bring us together, to fit us together as living stones, the Scripture says, in order to turn us into a house for God to dwell in. So verses 10 through 17 describe, again, pastoral ministry or the apostles' work among the Corinthians using this metaphor. Pastors are farmers. They're also, verse 10, master builders. And that Greek word is the Greek word architecton. Sound familiar? Architect. Okay. So, the church is a field. Apostolic ministry is a lot like farming. The church is a building. Apostolic ministry is a lot like architecture or construction. 
But what I want you to see is that all of the commentators are in agreement that the images of the church as a field and as a temple also help all of us in the room. You, not only me, but you also understand that we all have work to do. That all this is not just pastoral work. It is the work of the church as a community of faith that we are all gardeners, right? That we are all to be paying attention to one another and planting and watering and weeding in one another's lives and so forth, teaching and correcting and helping and rebuking so that together we can cultivate a community of people that will be fruitful. In the same way, we're, we're all, all of us, we're all builders. We're all architects. And it's interesting, if you take the, the, the noun that's used to that word building there, you are God's building, 3-9, if you take that noun and you turn it into a verb in the scripture, it becomes the word that literally means to edify or to encourage. And so literally, what the scripture teaches us is, is that our job, our work among one another in one another's lives is to be building one another up through the work and the ministry of encouragement so that we strengthen one another in faith so that together we can become a holy house for God to dwell in. That's the vision of the church that he's giving us here. And that's why Paul's so concerned about what's going on among the Corinthians, because the church is not being built up, it's being ripped apart and weakened. And the Corinthian Christians aren't of one heart and one soul, they're splintered into all these different factions following all these different leaders. And so Paul issues the warning, and I want you to see it there in verse 10. He says, let each one take care how he builds. He assumes... That the job of building belongs to all of us. And he says, every single person, take care how you build. That means stop and think. Be thoughtful. Are you building? Or are you tearing down? He says, there's one foundation, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But upon the foundation of the gospel, we're all building. And some are building with gold. You see that verse 12? Silver and precious stones. Others are building with wood and hay and straw. In other words... Some are building diligently, others are building lazily, some are beautifying the church, others through carelessness or selfishness are destroying. And Paul says we should be careful how we build. And here's what I want you to see. He's very clear, the apostle. He says that the reason, the motivation that we should, that we should hold on to to propel us toward the work of building into one another's lives, is this extended thing here beginning in verse 12, that there is a day of reckoning that is coming. Verse 13, where each one's work will become manifest for the day. You see the capital D? The day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Now, if you're here, and you're new to the Bible, you're new to Christianity, or if you're here and you'd say, I, I, you know, I'm not a Christian, what does that mean? I, I, I've got to tell you, Christians believe that at the end of the world, when Jesus comes back, we believe this Jesus who has ascended into heaven will come again from heaven, and when he comes, there will be a day of reckoning. What the Bible calls the day of judgment, where each one of us will give an account to God for how we've lived our lives. And so, You see, the good that we have done that has gone unnoticed will finally be seen and rewarded, and the wrong that we've done that may have gone unnoticed will be reckoned with, and we will be made to answer. It will be disclosed. Everything will be revealed, Paul says. 
And Paul's extended arguments, it really goes from verse 10 all the way down to verse 15, if you look in, in your scripture passage. This extended argument is that on the day of judgment, we will stand before God to be judged according to our diligence in using our words, our talents, our treasures, and whatever it might be to build up the church and not to tear it down, to help, in other words, bring out the glory of the church because he tells us the church is holy. The church is God's temple. The church matters to God. You don't mess with the church. Right? And so there's coming a day when every one of us will be made to give an account to the judge of how well we used the gifts he's given us towards the goal of building the church up. Now, you might say, but I thought Christians aren't going to be judged. Right? I'm doing the whole Puritan thing. Objection. Objection. Right? I thought, I thought as Christians there was no judgment for us. My answer is this, that condemnation is off the table. Paul is not talking here about salvation, about heaven or hell. I'm going to make this clear, hang in there for just, for just a minute. But we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, not by any works of the law. Amen? I mean, whoo, praise Jesus. But, but, right? However, the Bible also clearly teaches that even those who are in Christ will be judged according to their work and receive their wages. So Paul's writing to Christians in this letter and he tells them, take care how you build because the day is coming when God will evaluate your work and he will give you a verdict on your work and you will experience either, verse 14, reward or, verse 15, loss. Not damnation, not condemnation, but loss. Well, what does that mean? Well, I have to have have the humility this morning to tell you I have no idea. But I know what loss is. Right? Not condemnation, but loss. And he, so verse 15, Paul's clear. If anyone's work is burned up, you know, if the judge comes and he's not happy with the work, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. You see that? So it doesn't do us, it doesn't do us good to say, I'm saved by grace and therefore there's no, no, there's an evaluation coming. Jonathan Edwards who was a a famous Puritan pastor in the 18th century in New England, labored in his church for 27 years, 29 years. I can't remember the exact time. This is a guy, under his ministry, the great awake, probably the greatest spiritual revival in the history of America happened. He is considered by most people to be uh, the, the most intelligent, the most articulate theologian and pastor America has ever, he's the greatest pastor America has ever produced. And yet after 29 years of ministering in this congregation, they decided they were, di- they were tired of him and wanted him to move on. <laughs> Woo. See what I have to look forward to? Because I'm, I'm not any of those things. He gave a farewell sermon to his, to his congregation on his last Sunday with them. And the title of the sermon was this. And this is, this is, this is why he's the greatest pastor America's ever produced. Ready? Here's the title of his farewell sermon to his church. Ministers and their people must meet one another before Christ's tribunal on the day of judgment. <laughs> so as he was leaving, he's saying to them, this is what he says in the sermon. He says, Beloved, we will meet again on the day of judgment to give account of our behavior towards one another. So the scripture calls ministers to keep watch over the souls under their care and to faithfully preach and teach and discipline them as men who must give an account 
In the same way, the scripture commands the congregation to obey its leaders and submit to them to care for their needs and make their work a joy and not a burden. So Edwards was saying to his people, he was saying, I'm leaving you now, but we have an appointment with one another. We're going to meet one another again, this time before the judge of the universe, and I will give an account of how diligently or carelessly I fulfilled my duties to you, to shepherd you, and you are going to give an account of how diligently or carelessly you fulfilled your duties to me. Just in case you're wondering, that scares me to death. Right, when I marry people and they're standing in front of me all spiffed up and they take vows to one another in that ceremony, I tell them most times that the wedding is just the dress rehearsal for the day. That Paul says in Ephesians 5 that it is the work of the husband to sanctify or beautify his wife so that on the day of judgment, when he stands before the triune God, he can present her without stain or wrinkle. Right? And so it's this idea of husbands and wives will have an appointment on the day. A husband will have an appointment with Jesus. Husbands, do you know that? You're going to have an appointment with Jesus on the day of judgment to answer for your care of your wife. That's why we take membership vows in this church. Because we believe that we have an appointment with one another on the day to give an account to the judge of how diligent or how careless we were in building into one another. Paul says, take care how you build. So that's the warning. That's the warning, okay? But secondly, this passage also helps us understand the reason. So it not only gives us a warning about division and disunity, God takes this stuff seriously. The church is God's temple. It's, it's meant to be a holy dwelling place for God. And if we tear down and don't build up, uh, he says, if you destroy the temple, God's going to destroy you. But secondly, if, in light of the warning... We need to know a little bit about what causes division and disunity, what the reason for it is. And so I'm, help, I'm grateful that this text also helps us on that point. And Paul names it twice. In chapter 3, verse 21, if you look at that verse, he says, after he's reasoned out everything he's done to that point, he says, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. And then again, all the way down at the bottom, In verse 7 of chapter 4, he says, For who sees anything different in you? And what do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So the cause of the divisions in Corinth, the cause of the disunity, all of the friction and the fracturing of relationships was this thing that Paul refers to as boasting. Now, we've talked about this before. And so I want to come at it from a little different angle this morning. I want to focus primarily on chapter 4, uh, verses 4, excuse me, verses 3 through 7. So if you look down at the, the bottom portion of that scripture passage that I printed for you, we're going to deal with those uh, verses primarily. And I want to ask and answer three questions, just these three questions, okay? What is a boast? Where does boasting come from? And how does it destroy community? Okay, those are my three questions that I'm working through. What is a boast? Where does it come from? How does it destroy community? Okay, so first, what is a boast? What does Paul mean when he says, verse 21, let no one boast in men? Verse 7 of chapter 4, if you receive all these things, why do you boast as if you did not receive them? Okay, what is it? Uh, I included, if you look at your assurance of pardon, this passage from Romans 3. 
because it's so helpful in defining what Paul means by boasting here in 1 Corinthians 3 and 4. And the issue there in Romans 3 is, is what Paul refers to as a righteousness, that we, we need a righteousness and we don't have one. And the righteousness there in Romans 3 refers to the verdict, that we need a verdict. We need, it, we need an evaluation. And we need, we need somebody to pass a verdict on us. And in the verses just before this passage in Romans 3 that I printed, Paul has been laboring to show his, his readers that no matter how hard we try, we will always fall hopelessly short. We need a righteousness, but we're powerless to earn one. Even our very best efforts are inadequate. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God has done for us in Jesus Christ what we could never do for ourselves. And so he says there, Romans 3.24, We are justified by his grace as a gift. See that? In other words, we get a righteousness, but not one we've earned. It's a gift. We get the verdict. We pass the test, so to speak. But it's on the basis, Paul says, of the work of another and not our own work. And then he goes on to say there at the end, he says, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded how he puts it. And so a boast, according to the Bible, in this passage in Romans 3, is an attempt to earn some righteousness of our own that we can then give to God in order for him to love and bless us, to get from him the verdict. It's a way of recommending ourselves to others in order to get the verdict we need. And the only way, you know, the be- I was thinking about this just last night. You know, if you, want, if you want an illustration of what I'm referring to, let me, how good does it feel to post something on Facebook and check back an hour later? And I know you do, because we all do. You post something on Facebook, you check back an hour later, and then there at the bottom, there's that. Right? Right? Those of you who may not be aware of Facebook, uh, you can, people post things and you can like it, and literally the like function is literally a thumbs up icon. As if there's somebody out there and who knows where they are, you know, they... They're doing this. It just feels good, doesn't it? Why? Because, see, this, that's the verdict. This is the verdict, right? You remember the gladiator, the, the scene of gladiator? Right? Which way is it going to go? <laughs> right? And we all know what that is. But there's this, so this a boasting is a way of recommending ourselves to God or to others in order to get the thumbs up. If you're doing it for the thumbs up. If you're posting on Facebook for the sake of a thumbs up, it's a boast. If you're doing a good thing for the sake of the kickback, the the ego boost kickback you're going to get from people's applause, then it is what the scripture calls a boast. Okay, but secondly then, the second question is, if that's what a boast is, then where does it come from? And I want you to look in verse 5 of chapter 4. I'm going to read this, this verse. Paul's saying to the church, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then on that day, in other words, each one will receive his commendation from God. Now Paul's saying there's a verdict that is coming. But the problem is, is we're impatient for it. We want the verdict now. So instead of waiting, we boast because the way, the boast is the way to get the verdict now. What he says before the time. And so the assumption there is is that at least for the moment we have to be content with not getting the accolades for our our good deeds deserved. There's an evaluation that's coming, Paul says, when everyone's work will be revealed and put on display and rewarded, but for now 
There's a lot of good that we do that goes unnoticed, and there's a lot of selfishness that gets passed off as good work. Right? The hero... Check out the superhero movies, right? I mean, I, I know this is going to get me made fun of. I have this weird fascination with superhero movies. Not comics. I never really got into that. But, but what fascinates me about all the superhero movies is, is in most of them, the hero is often mistaken for the villain, and the villain is treated like the hero. And that's part of what the hero has to live with, right? Is not being seen, not his good deeds not being seen for what they really are. So Clark Kent comes to the rescue All the time, in every episode in Smallville, right? Every time he comes, and yet he's never really understood and he never gets any of the credit. And that's hard, okay? That's hard to live with. It's hard to live with feeling like you've done good and you've not received the recompense for that good or to know that others have done badly and instead of being treated according to their bad deeds, what what their, their bad deeds deserves, they get the very praise that those who do good should get. So the, the, the villain is treated like the hero, villain is treated like the hero, the hero like the villain. It's hard to live with because we want the verdict now. We want what Paul promises will one day be to be now. We don't want to have to wait for it. But he says, don't pronounce the judgment before the time. You have to wait. And that's where, that's where the sense of boasting comes from, is that, that sense of my pride being unapplauded, the good things I've done being unapplauded by other people, and the bad things other people have done to me, they've not been dealt with. And so I just have this, I need to be finally recognized for the amazing, awesome, great person that I know I myself to be. <laughs> right? And it's amazing that we think Risotto Rice on Facebook can get that from people. Right? I made risotto, I made, I made like risotto, mushroom risotto with da, 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 da for my wife. We sat down by candlelight at dinner tonight and angels sing in the background and it was amazing. The kids went to bed at 6.30 because I'm a good mom and I get them in bed when I'm supposed to. And it, yeah. <laughs> right? That's what it is. That's what it is. Okay. So that's what a boast is, and that's where it comes from. Okay, but the third thing I want you to see is how it destroys community. So if boasting is the problem, and, and that's the sense of we're looking for the verdict, we need it to come, we're not content to wait. Where, so how does it then, Paul's concern is that it destroys community, and how does it do so? C.S. Lewis brilliantly wrote about pride and boasting in mere Christianity, and one of the things that he said there was that pride by necessity, pride by, by definition, The very essence of what pride is. Pride, by definition, is competitive. Here's how he put it. It's a really famous quote, but I'll read it. He says, this is C.S. Lewis, he says, Each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. It is because I wanted to be the big noise at the party that I'm so annoyed at somebody else being the big noise. (laughs) Pride is essentially competitive, competitive by its very nature. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud. It is the pleasure of being above the rest. Now, this really comes out in the text in a short phrase in verse 6 of chapter 4. Paul tells the Corinthians 
that his aim and all that he has been writing about in these first few chapters is to make sure, look at this phrase, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Boasting, see, boasting creates competition. Boasting creates division. I want to say it this way. Boasting turns your friends into your competitors. And when that happens, when, when, when your heart is so full of the need to receive the affirmation and blessing of other people that you would even begin to look at those people who are, in truth, your friends as competitors, then it's impossible for you to be engaging in this work of building people up with love and encouragement. You'll be trying to tear them down because in tearing them down, you can build yourself up. And that's what's happening And it's destroying the church. So, finally then, where do we get the power to heal, I think in our case, to prevent the kind of division and disunity that Paul is talking about here? And it is the gospel of grace which does away with all boasting. Okay, the heart of this passage is 1 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. And in those verses, Paul shows us how the gospel can heal our hearts and do away with boasting and Look at what he says there. He says, verse 3, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. That is an amazing sentence. I mean, that is an earth-shattering, flip your life upside down, nothing will ever be the same kind of sentence. Because what he means is this. For Paul, his identity owed nothing to what other people thought of him. He didn't need other people to approve of him. He was completely free from any verdict that might, that might be passed by others against him. And I read that and I go, how, how in the world do you get to that place? How does, how does that happen in your life? And the problem is, is if you were to go to most counselors in our culture, the answer that you would get would be something like this. Well, you've got to learn to accept yourself. Right? It doesn't matter what other people think about you. What really matters is what you think about you. But what you have to see is that's not at all what Paul does here. Look again. He keeps going, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any other human court. And then this, in fact, I do not even judge myself. Now, what that means is this. For Paul, the verdict that we all need that's coming, but we're impatient for, didn't come from what others thought of him. And it didn't come from what he thought of him. So Paul wasn't overly influenced by critique or praise. He didn't beat himself up over the times when he messed up. But there wasn't a swagger about his life either. He says, I mean, what the, the, the best way I ever heard this put is, is he says, um, Paul's saying, I have a very low opinion of your opinion of me. But I also have a very low opinion of my opinion of me. Now, Tim Keller preached a sermon on these verses, and it was so good that it was published into a little booklet you can get on Kindle for 99 cents, and it is worth $1,000. It's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. You ought to go get it this afternoon, and if so, don't judge me for saying what he says. I can't say it better than he does. Okay? But here, here's part of what he says about these verses in a way that, that really he is so talented to do. He says, Paul is saying, this is, Paul is saying, I have a very low opinion of your opinion of me. I also have a very low opinion of my opinion of me. When Paul says that he does not let the Corinthians judge him, nor will he judge himself, he's saying that he knows about his sins, but he does not connect them to himself and his identity. His sins and his identity are not connected. 
He refuses to play that game. He does not see a sin and let it destroy his sense of identity. He will not make that connection. Neither does he see an accomplishment and congratulate himself. He sees all kinds of sins in himself. And all kinds of accomplishments too, but he refuses to connect them with himself or his identity. Paul has reached a place where he's not thinking about himself anymore. And when he does something wrong or something good, he doesn't connect it to himself anymore. See, what Tim Keller's saying is Paul is not a self-hating person. He's not a self-loving person. Paul has become a self-forgetful person. And that's the end of boasting. But how in the world can that happen in your own life and heart? How can it happen to us so we can be like Paul's? There are two things I want to reason out by way of conclusion, and I'm almost done. Okay, two things that I just want to talk to you about, just in practical, hopefully very practical, that will get us uh, closer to the model and example of Paul here in these verses. Okay, first, if you build your life on these two things, everything will change. First, all the things that we turn into boasts, whatever they might be, right? Mushroom risotto or my kid hitting the home run or whatever it might be. My good theology, my ability you know, to, to my business success, whatever, my kids and their um, behavior. All the things we turn into boasts, what we learn from this text is they get you absolutely nowhere with God. There's no merit in them whatsoever. The whole idea of works righteousness, Luther said, in other words, this, I do something and that something sets me apart from everybody else. And because it sets me apart from everybody else, it merits or earns me God's love and acceptance. That whole idea assumes that we're able to act independently and apart from God. In other words, in order to do something that merits me salvation, that gets God's attention and exalts me above others, I have to do it on my own without God. And according to the Bible, that's impossible. And this passage is full of powerful statements by Paul that debunk that whole idea. Look at verse 7. I mean, build your life on verse 7. Who sees anything different in you? And what do you have that you did not receive? How would life be different? And if you, did, if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not? There's, not I do, there's nothing I have that was not given to me by God. There's nothing I do that he is not by his grace worked into me. There's nothing that I can look to that would merit me favor and love with God. Because there's nothing I do that's not sourced in him to begin with. I mean, the death blow to pride. Okay? So all these things we turn into boasts. The reality is they get you nowhere. Secondly. So the second thing you have to do then is you have to realize that. But then the second thing this passage tells you you have to do is you have to place then your significance in the ultimate verdict that's coming. That can come into your heart and life now through, though it's still a future reality. So when we're impatient for the verdict, we live every day in the courtroom. That's what happens. We're on trial every day. And there's prosecution and defense and everything we do. It literally is like every moment of the day, everything we do is either providing evidence for the prosecution or providing evidence for the defense. And some days you feel like you're winning and other days like you're losing, but Paul, Paul says, Paul doesn't live that way. Paul's out of the courtroom. The trial is over for him because he's come to the, under, uh, to the understanding of something, and that is that the ultimate verdict is in. And the problem the Corinthians have, and the reason there's so much division and disunity is that they're, re, they're religious people, and religious people believe that, the perf, that their religious performance leads to the verdict. That if you're part of the right group, or if you have the right teaching, or if you do the right thing, then... 
God will love you. That performance leads to the verdict. And that creates, what does it create? One-upmanship and competition and envy. Turns your friends into your competitors. Because the goal is to outperform everybody else. But in Christianity, it's the exact opposite. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that the verdict comes and then it leads to the performance. The verdict is not the consequence of the performance. The performance, spiritual performance, is the consequence of the verdict. And so if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're here and you've put your trust in him, then, then what the scripture would tell you is the verdict is in. That you're out of the courtroom. You're out of the trial. And the reason you're out of the trial is because Jesus went into the trial for you. Let me quote Keller again because it's too good. Honestly, not to. He says, Paul is out of the courtroom and out of the trial because Jesus went to trial, because Jesus went into the courtroom. As our substitute, he took the condemnation we deserved. He took the trial we deserved so that we don't have any more trials. The minute I say, Lord God, accept me because of what Jesus has done, the only person whose opinion counts looks at me and finds me more valuable than all the jewels that are under the earth. Now, let me connect this full circle because remember I taught, so what does that have, to, then how does the verdict being in have to do with the judgment that still awaits us? See, this impending judgment, even for Christians, that God's going to evaluate our work, and we're going to experience reward or loss so that we should build. The gospel solution to that, we've gotten this wrong, I think, and I'm grateful that, that I, I really labored over this this weekend, and, and this, this was really helpful. This is how this works in preaching. You say, I know what I need to say, but I don't know how to say it. So God help me. And this is, how do I say that? How do I make sense of that? How do I make sense of it from my own heart so I can help you make sense of it in yours? And here's the way uh, God landed on me in that, is that the gospel solution to this impending judgment, right, the way you become a person who is prepared for, for God's evaluation, the gospel solution isn't to take away judgment. The good news of the gospel isn't that Jesus takes away the threat of evaluation. The freedom of the gospel is better than that. It's exactly what Paul says here. There's still an evaluation. There's still a test. There's still a judgment there's, that, will reward in, that will result in reward or loss, pass or fail. But no matter what it is on that day, it's not tied to my identity. That even though Paul says I will be judged on the basis of my performance, that performance doesn't affect my position, my status. What determines my status is that I belong to Jesus, that I am in him. See? Inside of that, now I'm completely free to be evaluated. Because my identity is completely divorced from any sense of, well, I did well there, right? Therefore, I'm somebody. Or I did poorly, therefore, I'm nobody. It's only when I live believing that my performance doesn't lead to the verdict that I'm free to be a person who is ready for the verdict, whatever it might be. So let me close with this. Uh, what, what we learn in this passage is that a Christian who boasts is an oxymoron, or just a moron. <laughs> Sorry, I can't mess that up. And here's why. <laughs> C.S. Lewis, uh, again, he said, uh, he said that it's impossible. He said it's impossible for a proud person to know God. So this is just classic... See, Lewis said it's impossible for a proud person to know God because proud people are always looking down on things and on other people. He said, but of course, if all you ever do is look down, then you can't see what's above you. 
And conversion, conversion is when you stop looking down and you start looking up. And when you look up, you realize it's impossible for you to ever look down again. You become a Christian when you realize that in God you have come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to you. And that necessarily produces humility. So you can't be a Christian without humility because you can't be a Christian unless you stop looking down and you start looking up. Are you here and not a Christian? Look up. And for those of you who are here and you've been Christians, if you're looking up, then the, very, the mere reality of you're looking up means you can never look down on people again. Lewis goes on to say quite cleverly that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Thus, Tim Keller's description of humility is self-forgetfulness. But what does a self-forgetful person look like? That's what Paul's describing here. And it's self-forgetful people. Uh, that will be the ones that build and beautify and bring out the glory of the church and who take the invisible kingdom and make it visible in a city like Winter Haven. Self-forgetful people are the people that do that. And so let's pray, can we, that God will make us people with the grace to no longer be proud but to become self-forgetful. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would take our pride and our arrogance and our boasting and that you would thwart it, Lord Jesus. We want to believe, with eyes of faith we want, and, and hearts of faith, we want to say to you that most of the things in our lives we're frustrated with, most of the places where we're disappointed or we're angry or we're confused are places where you are thwarting our attempts to make a name for ourselves and to provide a boast for ourselves. And we're angry with you because we, our hearts so long for the approval that those boasts would get us. And so, Father, thank you for doing good to us and refusing to allow our hearts to feed on anything else other than the gospel of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. But would you come and would you help us to rest our hope in, in you, that you are a God who is slow to anger, as the song we sang, rich in love, the God who has done all apart from us that we could not do for ourselves, the one who has provided for us a righteousness that is ours by faith. And would the result of our resting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ be that there would be no boasting, there would be no division, there would be no disunity, there would be no competition. We are brothers and sisters, not competitors. Forgive us, help us to, to repent of the ways that we allow division and disunity to creep into our life together. Holy Father, Preserve the unity of your church. That by being one with one another and our affection and love for one another, it might be part of the witness that we give to the truth and the power of the gospel to our city. That the city might see the love we have for one another and it might be an apologetic for the love that you have for the world. That is, that is, the, that is the mission you've given us. Would you send the Spirit to help us, to humble us, and to energize us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So don't go today and let the, the rolling, the timeline of your life be just this ever constant attempt to get one of these and to avoid one of these. Right? Because the promise of, the, of this benediction is for the one that really matters. For the, for the only one that really matters. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus, God has given you, I mean that's kind of cheesy to say, but God has given you the thumbs up. I raise my hands over you to signify 
the smile of the Father that rests upon the life of all of those who've put their faith and trust in Jesus. So go, live underneath his smile, and build. That's what we're called to do. And so receive this benediction, and may it be fuel for you uh, to go and to work and to head towards the impending judgment where we will be rewarded or we will receive loss. Um, But to know that either way it doesn't attach itself to our identity. Here is our sense of identity. Here uh, is our sense of status. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.